How do we decide what's true? I don't mean in a big philosophical way. I just mean in a gut reaction, day-to-day -day way. How do we decide what the truth is when we're bombarded with information, when we're scrolling through our Facebook news feeds and articles pop up, when friends send us and suggest links of videos to watch? How do we decide in all of that what's true? I'm going to say that there's two ways, at least, that we use that's more of a knee-jerk reaction in making judgments about the things that people tell us. The first one is this, unwittingly perhaps, without even think about it, thinking about it, we make a judgment based on who it is that's providing the information, whether that's the friend who's sharing it and thoughts we have about them, or the actual source of the news or the article or whatever it is. We'll already have an idea and a, a picture of who they are. And if we like them, then we tend to trust them. And if we dislike them, then we tend to distrust them. If it's from a new source that we accept as being legitimate and honest, then we won't ask many questions. But on the other hand, if it's from a source that we distrust, that we dislike, we still won't ask the questions. We'll just decide straight away that it isn't true. The second way is a lot like that, and it has to do more with the content of the message, the content of the article or the video that we're watching. The second way is whether we like what's being said. Does it line up with stuff that we already think is true? Does it line up with something that we want to be true? We're more inclined to believe things that we want to be true than we are inclined to believe things that are difficult to accept or are expecting us to change the way we see the world and ourselves and our place in it. See, truth isn't nearly as objective as we like to think it is. Each and every day, we make judgments about whether we're going to accept certain claims, certain statements, not by assessing the validity of those statements, but just by looking at who said it and whether we like what they have to say. And my my worry, I think that's the right way to describe it, my worry is that far too many people have rejected the Bible, have rejected the things that it says about Jesus Christ because they've heard statements like this, the Bible is too old to be trustworthy. Or the Bible that we have now has been edited and fiddled with and doctored too much for us to even know what the people who originally wrote it wrote. Or the Bible has been put together by a, a group, a sinister group of old white men in a room to manipulate people. My worry is that we've believed those sorts of statements either because they've come from a source who we naturally are inclined to trust or simply because they present us with a view of the world, a view of the Bible that we're quite happy to carry on with. That it's much easier to distrust the Bible than it is to explore it, to engage with it, to read it, um, to investigate it ourselves, to find out whether it's true. Now the Bible is an incredibly varied book and it would take far too long for me to, to go into the various reasons why we can trust it. Over the next couple of weeks we're going to be looking specifically at the Gospel of John, one part of the New Testament which is as close to a biography of Jesus' life as you're ever going to get. 
In it, John makes this claim. I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I've written these things that you may believe. And instantly that sets alarm bells off in people's minds. That sends them to the places, perhaps your places you would go to, as a, a reason and an excuse to reject the Bible out of hand completely. You see, John, that's why I can't trust what you've written. You've written it thousands of years ago. What's in the Bible now, I'm not sure is what you ever wrote. And anyway, you have clearly, clearly got an agenda. Do you expect me to believe a single word that you've written? I think John clearly does expect us to believe, and I think it's reasonable to believe what John has written. Not because those objections aren't important, but even spending a few moments thinking about them, considering them, we see that they're not really objections to what John has written, or the Bible in general, at all. Let's face them one by one. The first objection that it's just too old. John's Gospel um, was written nearly 2,000 years ago. There are portions of the Bible which are significantly older than that. And so our inclination is to say it's too old, it can't be trusted, it can't be reliable. But stop and think about what we're saying when we do that. We're saying that the age of something determines whether it's true or not. That somehow something could have been true a long time ago, but that truth decays over time. Flip it on its head and you see how really ridiculous that statement is. That because something is new, it must be true. We know that's not the case. In any way, how old is too old? Is something that's five minutes too old? Of course not. Something that's five days too old? Probably not. But what about five months? Five years, five decades, five centuries. You see, it's, it's arbitrary where we draw the line in the sand over what we would trust if it was based purely alone on age. The idea that we can't trust the Bible just because it's old simply doesn't make sense to anybody who's willing to stop and to think about it. The second objection is that it's been meddled with, interfered with, it's been chopped and changed and added to and taken away from over the years. Really? Has it? When? By who? In what way? You know, one of the fascinating things about the Bible is that it is the most scrutinised piece of literature in human history. It's been porked, it's been prodded, it's been investigated, it's been questioned and interrogated more than any other book in history. And it still remains standing. More work has been done researching the authenticity, the originality of the biblical text than any other book. And scholars almost universally accept it to be a true and accurate reflection of what was written down in the first place. And they do that in a really interesting way. It might not sound convincing to begin with, uh, but it really is. 
They do it because of how many copies we have of documents like John's Gospel. Now, it is fair to say we do not have the original document written by John, but we have scores and scores and scores of copies. Let me help you to understand why that's important. I've got notes with me here today, notes to help me stay on track. Um, and just so you know, there's about a thousand to 1,500 words in those notes. Now imagine I asked everyone who was watching this to copy down by hand those notes. We'd collect at the end maybe 100, 150 um, versions of my notes and truth be told, none of them would be 100% correct. If your writing is anything like mine, you'd misspell words, you'd put punctuation in the wrong places, heaven forbid, even whole paragraphs might be missed out by people who are rushing. But here's the really amazing thing, is that your mistakes and my mistakes and the mistakes of the person next to you, they wouldn't all be made in the same place. Actually, all of our mistakes would be easily spotted by looking at all of the other copies. If you grabbed all those copies together and decided to burn my original set of notes, you'd still be able to reproduce with 99.9% .9 accuracy and certainty a representation of what was originally written. So the idea that it's been fiddled with, the idea that it's been meddled with, that doesn't stand up to scrutiny either. Well, what about that last objection then? That you can't trust it because it was written with such an obvious agenda. I think there's a sense in which we're right to be suspicious. There's a sense in which we're right to be sceptical of people who twist truth in order to accumulate wealth, power and authority. Our society is full of examples of men and women who have been economical with the truth or have told bold-faced, bare-faced lies in order to fatten their bank accounts or to tighten their grip on authority. We should be sometimes suspicious of people who have an agenda. But when we stop and we consider what is the agenda of someone like John, who wrote this account of Jesus's life, or the other people who contributed to the New Testament and the rest of the Bible, what do we suppose that they were after? Wealth? Power? Fame, recognition, rep uh, reputation, privilege, honour. Once again, history does not bear witness to those things being the case. Almost to a man, the people who wrote the New Testament suffered greatly for sharing the good news about Jesus. They were vilified. They were... Um, scorned, they were abused, they were beaten, they were chased out of time. An awful lot of them were executed for sticking to their story. The idea that they did it in order to accumulate wealth or power or whatever really doesn't hold water because what they had was taken away. They suffered and were persecuted for what they wrote and what they said. So what is the agenda? Because I think the agenda is really important. John says this, these things that I have written so that you may believe. Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the rescuer, that he is the son of God, God made flesh, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, John's agenda is that we would believe and that we would have life. Let me give you another example of uh, content that was created with a very specific agenda that really proves that having that agenda shouldn't undermine the message at all. When I was growing up, I remember late October, early November, there would be a series of adverts that would always come on TV. There would be adverts featuring families out on a dark winter's night and fireworks exploding overhead. And wouldn't you know it, there was always one dumb kid who would take off his mitten, reach out and grab a sparkler by the wrong end. Quickly, the advert would pan to Ernie, where a distraught family were dealing with the serious burns, the injuries that the firework had inflicted on this child. Etched in my brain, those adverts are, by the way. I still can't go near a sparkler. I still don't like being in the same room as a sparkler. Now, clearly, the makers of those adverts had an agenda. And the agenda was, we want to keep you, we want to keep your family, we want to keep children in our country safe when it comes to bonfire night. Knowing that they have that agenda doesn't in any way undermine the truthfulness or the validity or the impact that those adverts have had or should have. And I'd argue exactly the same with John and his record of Jesus's life ministry, miracles, teachings, comings, goings, death, resurrection. We're fortunate to know exactly what John wants us to do with it. He wants us to believe and he wants us to find life. And that doesn't undermine, that doesn't invalidate anything that he writes, does it? So let's think about that agenda then. Let's think about what John expects to happen if you and I read his gospel. We read his account of who Jesus is and what he has done. He expects us to believe and he expects us to find life. I genuinely believe that if you take the time to read John's gospel, you'll see how massive a claim that is. We think of life maybe simply in terms of being alive, but life is a massive theme. The sort of life that Jesus is described as bringing is more than just existence. It's flourishing, it's full, it's lasting in a way that very often we don't see or expect life to be. Um, put it this way, imagine a desert. It's dry, it's desolate, it's dead. It's just a wild wilderness where nothing can live. But it does exist. It's there. Now, when you introduce a source of water, a spring, a stream, a little pool and a puddle, what happens in that dead and dry place? Life appears. Life actually flourishes. Plants and palm trees and then animals all of a sudden there's this source of life in the middle of dryness and death and it, it couldn't exist without the water and it, it wouldn't exist if the water was taken away. This is what John is suggesting Jesus is to us. Not just one who points us in the direction of life. Not even just one who is like a doorman or, or a gatekeeper who says, here's life 
and I'll let you in. But the very source of life itself, you may have life in his name. And, and the thing is, we actually agree with John, if we're honest, that there is more to life than we often accept, than we often acknowledge. That's why we have phrases when we're relaxing on holiday or we're tucking into a fine meal, phrases like, this is the life. Because we know that something different is happening. We know that there are qualities and levels of living and life. And that's why we pursue various things in order to find life and to maintain life. At the moment, some people might think that face masks are life. And no doubt, for some in our community, they will literally be the difference between life and death. For others, as lockdown restrictions have been lifted, trips to the beach have become life. Especially as we, we see some of the natural beauty and wonder around us and glorious weather, and we see it with fresh eyes, having not experienced it for so long. For some people, relationships are life. And we can certainly feel like death has come on us when relationships end. For other people, financial security, that's life. Just having that worry, that burden taken away, at last we can breathe and we can experience things. Now, I'm not saying those things are bad. In fact, I'd go as far as to say those things are good, those things are great. But it's like being in that desert place, sitting under the shade of the palm tree, enjoying a cool sip from the, from the, the, the pond that's gathered there, and thinking these things are life. These things are gifts that come from the source of life, from the spring that has sprung up, that is watering that place. Take the spring away and those things will certainly go. Without the springs, we couldn't have those things. And John says, that is who Jesus is. He is the source of life. Not to uh, play down the other things, the good things that we have in this world, but that without the source, we are really not living life at all. The amazing thing about the life that Jesus came to give us is that it's a life that doesn't run out. When we search for life elsewhere, it's always life that's limited. It's life with an expiration date. But here John is pointing us to one whose final miracle, final act, was rising from death, was defeating death. You'll find life in John's gospel in so many weird and wonderful places, but none more surprising than the burial chamber of Jesus of Nazareth. Because it didn't remain a burial chamber. It became a, a testimony to the fact that he is the source of life, able even to defeat death. That's the sort of life that John is saying if we... Let our guards down. Don't dismiss the Bible or what he has written for all these false reasons. But come and listen to his eyewitness accounts of who Jesus is, what he said and what he did. That we would find that sort of life. Death conquering life. Life without an expiration date. Life that truly satisfies. 
That, that's another truism about the world that we live in. When we find that sensation of life in something, it runs out or we realise it's not quite enough. It doesn't quite satisfy us enough. It doesn't quench our thirst or, or satiate our hunger. John says the life that Jesus came to give, the life that we find when we come to him, that's, that's a life that really satisfies he says it's a life that's abundant, that's more than we could ever hope or dream or imagine. I don't know about you, but I do hope, I do dream, I do imagine, I do fantasise about holidays in various places, of having gizmos and gadgets in my life and my home. John says the life, Jesus said, the life that I've come to give you is above and beyond all your wildest expectations and dreams. And it's eternal. It's a, it's a life that lasts on and on and on. John's offer is not to settle for anything else then, I guess. John's offer, John's kindness to us, is to record all the things that he does about Jesus so that we don't need to keep on being dry and dead and desolate and, and wild like that desert, but that we can come to see and recognize and have Jesus, that, that spring of life, that watering life that brings with it fullness and lushness, even in a dry and a desolate place. Problem is, I think that for most of us, we settle for the dry, we settle for the desolate, or in the midst of that, that when a, a thorny cactus braves its way out of the deadness and the dryness, we cling on to that as if that is the life that we need. I deliberately use that picture, mind you, because it's like grabbing hold of a cactus. It's sharp, it's painful, it's ultimately disappointing and it, and, and it won't really do anything for us. No, we have Jesus, a spring of life in the midst of death. Sometimes though life can still feel like death even when you have Jesus. There's no denying that, that life now in this world is hard, it's disappointing, it's frustrating, it's full of worries and anxieties and cares. But I think here's another wonderful offer from Jesus that if we fix our eyes on him, if we continue to see him, to focus on him, we'll see and we will experience true and abundant life. As Christians, one of the mistakes we can make is to take our eyes off Jesus, as if we're at the edge of that oasis in the desert and we turn around in the other direction. And all we can see for miles and miles and miles, as far as the shimmering horizon, is more dryness and death and desolation. And we ask, where, where is this life that you promised Jesus? And it's, it's just there. He hasn't gone, he hasn't run out, the life hasn't turned into death, we've just turned our gaze away from it. And John says, not just come and believe, but keep coming, keep seeing, keep believing, and keep on enjoying life. In Jesus' name. Let me pray for us to finish. Lord God, we thank you for that life that Jesus has brought. 
We thank you for that life that Jesus is. Lord God, we thank you for people like John who saw and understood exactly who Jesus was and why what he was doing was so important and took the time and the energy and was willing to sacrifice in order to share that with us so that we could come and we could see and we could experience. Lord, we admit that we are a thirsty, sun-scorched, parched people in the midst of that desert, that dryness, that desolation. Lord, we need the life that Jesus brings. Help us to see that life. Help us to move towards that life. And help us to remain there in that life. Lord, I God, I thank you for the things that spring up because of that water, for the palm trees, for the, for the soft, lush, green grass. I pray that we would be people who enjoy those and are thankful for those. But Lord, help us not to be people who fix our eyes on those, who give thanks for those and not for the spring of life that has sprung up. Help us to be truly thankful, appreciative, filled with joy and love for Jesus, who's in whose name we have true and lasting life. Amen.